Good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, August 16th, and we have something special for you guys today. Amen. Proverbs 25.2 teaches us something important. It says it is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Do we have any kings in this house today? See, we're going to be searching out some deep truths that God has for us. He is going to give us something beautiful today, and you need to be ready. We're going to continue on with our Godly Sorrow series, but we're going to do it in a pretty interesting way this morning. Our title today is Godly Sorrows, No Regrets. Now, when Proverbs 25.2 says that God conceals a matter, you mustn't think of him as some kind of masochist that just wants to torture you because you can't find it. Instead, in a strange irony, I'm suggesting you think of a pagan holiday, Easter. A father goes out into the yard and he hides an Easter egg. Not because he hopes his children will never find it, but he's looking for the joy and delight in their eyes when they do. This morning, your eyes will be open to something better than an Easter egg. Something more like the resurrection power of Christ Jesus. We need to introduce to you something that some are familiar with and others not, and you're going to see many examples today. A chiastic structure is a structure that follows a literary pattern in the Bible. It's, it's uh, present in other kinds of literature, but in the Bible, a chiastic structure follows a pattern that sounds something like A-B-B-A. I want to give you some examples of these because I know that makes no sense to you. We're going to start with basic Hebrew parallelism because that'll be very easy for you to get. And then we will build in to examples of chiastic structures in the Bible. We're about to go from Genesis all the way through Revelation and it will have extraordinary bearing on what you've been learning. Are you ready? We're going to start in Genesis 4.15. This is basic Hebrew parallelism. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. Every husband in the room ought to be able to relate to at least half of this verse. If you have two wives, you're in the wrong church. That's the LDS and they're on their way to hell. But everybody who has ever been married at some point stops and says, are you listening to me? The Hebrew here is Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Those are the names of Lamech's wives. So the next line says, wives of Lamech. Do you see how it is simply repeating in a different way what was said just before? Ada and Zillah relates to wives of Lamech. Listen to me relates to hear my words. It happens again in the next line. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. You can see the obvious correlations. That's Hebrew parallelism. It carries all the way through the New Testament. Let's take a look at the New Testament law by turning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, we're going to look at verse 12. Somebody say no regrets when you get there. Matthew 23, 12. It says this, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Somebody say humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is another form. We're in the New Testament now, but we have, although they may be speaking Greek and written in Greek, these are Hebrew men thinking in Hebrew thoughts. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted is a parallelism. 
It's also what Pastor showed us, and it's, it's a type of, of chiastic structure where you have an A, the exalts himself, to the B, humbles. Then B, humbles, back to the A. So we're drawing a parallels, parallelism here to emphasize a singular point that's there. Everybody with us so far? Yes. See, what, what we're going to add to this is the beauty of uh, you can emphasize it by focusing on what is written. That each one has a parallelism to it. You see the parts and how they relate to each other. We're going to show you some forms of a chiastic structure that emphasizes something that has no parallel within the structure. Now, when he says has no parallel, that's because exalts, humbled, humbles, exalted. You can clearly see that each one has a parallel and what is emphasized is the two that are in the center. A, B, B, A. The point of Matthew 23 is about humility. That's the whole point. But there is another kind that goes beyond parallelism, and it's what is considered a more pure chiastic structure. Would you like to see it in Genesis 3? Yeah. Okay, we're going to put this on a slide. You obviously have read Genesis 3 and can verify what we're saying. In Genesis 3, I want you to notice the order. The man is questioned. Then the woman is questioned. Forget about the serpent for a minute. Then the woman is given a sentence with a solution. And the man is given a sentence with a solution. Do you see how the man is A, the woman is B, the woman is B again, and the man is A? There is something in this structure, though, that has no parallel. It's sandwiched right in the middle. It's what's considered the X or the crossover in the chiastic structure. The man is questioned. The woman is questioned. The serpent, he is not questioned. What he has to say is not important. The woman is given a solution. The man is given a solution. The serpent, he is not given a solution. He's neither questioned nor is he given a solution. When you're reading Genesis 3, you tend to see it in the light of man's failure and maybe man's redemption. But hidden in this literary device, there is something to jump out at you. There is a serpent that is condemned. He has no argument. He has no hope. He has no solution. He is condemned. What you are looking for in chiastic structures, the shocking part that you're looking for, is what in the structure has no parallel. Somebody say no parallel. No parallel. The unparalleled truth of Genesis 3 is that there is no hope of redemption for the serpent. Can you all see that? In light of what we've been learning about the celestial powers teaching... That really ought to strike at your core. Sandwiched in the middle of man's failure and man's redemption is the astounding, unparalleled truth. The serpent has no hope of redemption. Wow. Well, aren't you already amazed at what you're learning here from the structure? Is this the same emphasis that you would place on it? Probably not. But the Word of God in through this chiastic structure is helping you to find an emphasis that maybe you have missed before. Let's be honest. That you have missed before. That the whole point of Genesis 3 is talking to you about the serpent being cursed. See, we want to show you another relationship. Let's look from left to right across the screen. 
The chiastic structure of this passage promotes the idea that man has a problem that God would need to solve. The chiastic structure of this passage also promotes the idea that the woman has a problem that God would also need to solve. The shocking part, the whole point of the chiastic structure of this verse is that it's viewed from the perspective when you look at it through a chiastic structure is that the serpent is cursed from the beginning and there is no opportunity to be questioned or find a solution. That gives you an unparalleled truth. Somebody say unparalleled truth. Notice the complexity of what you're seeing on the screen. It can be read in a linear fashion. The man is questioned, the woman is questioned, the serpent is cursed, the woman has a solution, and the man has a solution. That's what you glean from going simply through the text. When you examine the structure, though, it can be read in parallel. When the man is questioned, the man is eventually given a solution. That's what we arrive at. When the woman is questioned, she is eventually given a solution. That's what we arrive at. And you would come to the unparalleled truth that there is no solution for the serpent. Would you all like to see another one? Let's put up the next slide for you. Not only can this be done for a singular passage, but if you notice in the bottom left hand of your screen, we're going to now understand that entire lengthy passages in Scripture... Sometimes, by some would say, entire books of the Bible are written in a chiastic kind of structure. When you look at Exodus chapters 24 through chapter 40, that's that's a lot of chapters in there. What you're going to see is this exact chiastic structure here. We're going to start out at the glory of God, the glory of the Lord that is given at Mount Sinai. We're going to walk through the next chapters in the Word are talking about the building instructions. The heavenly pattern that Moses is given that he cannot deviate from. Then it further gives instructions about Shabbat, about the Sabbath. Now, first of all, if you're thinking through Exodus, you might have forgotten that this is a crucial, central step in what's going on. But when you see it in the chiastic structure, you're able to understand the importance of every single item and how they interrelate with each other. Then the original tablets are given. Then... The unparalleled part of this was that the law was broken and a calf was worshipped as God. And then you see it lift from that point, the X, the crossover of this, where it lifts through the tablets being restored, the Shabbat implemented, the building of the temple complete, and the glory of the Lord is now not only resting with a singular man, it is resting within the entire group of His people, within the entire, entire nation as a whole. Now, Pastor went through that. In a linear fashion as it occurs in the chapters. Let's look at it in a parallel sense. The glory of the Lord starts on Mount Sinai with a singular man, Moses. But ultimately, the glory of God ends up within the camp of Israel for every person. The passage starts with building instructions given for the tabernacle. But it ends with the tabernacle being completed. It starts with Sabbath instructions, it ends with Sabbath implementation. It starts with tablets given, and it ends with tablets restored. In other words, the idolatry, as shocking and as grievous as it is, does not stop God's plan. He's still able to perform that which He promised. See, a chiastic structure shows you there is an unparalleled truth here that the law was broken and calves were worshipped, but it also shows you the ultimate end and aims of God. 
The reason these devices were utilized by the Holy Spirit is so that there could be layers of meaning to a text. You have to understand, Moses doesn't have a highlighter. He, he, he's not underlining words. In Hebrew, you can say something twice to emphasize it, or you can structure the entire passage to drive you to one conclusion with no parallel. As much as there is hope in this, when you look at it from a chiastic standpoint, the shocking truth of this passage is not that God will overcome. That is beautiful. The shocking truth in this passage is that idolatry is an unparalleled evil. See, church, the overall structure of this is supposed to emphasize the seriousness of idolatry and then the steps that God is able to take to restore his people. You're seeing the entirety of the story so you can learn that unparalleled truth. Somebody say unparalleled truth. Let's take a look at another one here as we go into the prophets. We have a passage out of 2 Kings 18 through 2 Kings chapter 21. See, we start off with Sennacherib's destructive actions. He's, he's wreaking havoc on the people of the day, taking and conquering lands, killing kings. And then he becomes, and you see that he comes to Jerusalem. And Sennacherib has a verbal offense against God's people. He's taunting them. He's, he's chastising them. Who are you going to put your faith in is what he begins by saying. And then you see Hezekiah's faithful activity of spreading out before the Lord the situation that he's in. He turns to the Lord. And what happens after he turns to the Lord is you get God's verbal response. Let me tell you what's going to happen. And then, then you see the mighty hand of God at work and his destructive actions that are proven in one night. One angel takes care of 185,000 of the enemy. You see, these are a, a linear progression that we can see and we learn a lesson that shows us of God's awesome power. But the unparalleled part of this is something that's beautiful. So when you're thinking of the unparalleled truth here, let's cover some that there are parallels for. Sennacherib had destructive action. He had defeated all of the lands on the way to Israel. Well, Yahweh's parallel to that is he sends an angel that kills 185,000 men in a single night. Sennacherib has a verbal offense. He literally says, standing outside the walls, you're going to drink your own urine and eat your own filth. So Yahweh eventually responds to that, and he says, I know where you live. <laughs> and the guy gets struck down in his own temple by his sons. Okay? That kind of parallelism is beautiful. But what there is no parallel for in this chapter, in this range of chapters, is Hezekiah's activity. The faithfulness under trial brings about an unparalleled victory from Yahweh because of Hezekiah's trust. Amen? Amen. This passage contains a idea for you that no matter what the destructive action of the enemy is, no matter what his verbal threat is, if you are faithful like Hezekiah, God will match him in kind and one-up him. Amen. Hey, let's, let's go to a short one. Is that alright? We're gonna do another prophet. Two laws, two prophets, two writings until you get the idea. Two witnesses everywhere. Timo, you doing alright? Timo's got on some new shoes today, y'all. Yeah, brother's looking alright. We're gonna look at Ezekiel 18 for a minute. This time I'm gonna do the linear fashion and Pastor Wade will explain the parallel fashion. 
When you're looking at this famous passage, understand that the wicked repent and live. And God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. And then the righteous turn from their righteous ways and they die. The linear reading of this gives you a great deal of insight. But there's another way to look at it, and it was intended to be that way. See, in this famous passage, church, the wicked that turn and live are in parallel with the righteous that turn and die. This is showing us, even here at the beginning in this parallelism, that all men are treated, are treated equally. They're all treated equally. It matters what you do and how you walk in this, how you walk this out. See, the truth that is being emphasized and amplified because there is no parallel. Somebody say unparalleled. Unparalleled. The unparalleled part of this passage, though, is that Yahweh takes no pleasure in the death of men anywhere, at any time. In other words, it is God's desire to save all of mankind. This is in Ezekiel 18. You can miss that point if you don't understand the chiastic structure, the unparalleled truth that is being emphasized here. God has no pleasure in the death of mankind. He wants to see people turn toward Him and live. See, God's desire to save mankind is absolutely, completely, wholeheartedly unparalleled. It's an unparalleled truth of the gospel. Before we move forward... Just to make sure you're tracking with us, because you're looking at us kind of seriously right now, which we want. The chiastic structure creates an almost X-like focal point with an unparalleled truth revealed in it, something that nothing else can quite correlate to. Are y'all getting that? This is a way of emphasizing. It is uh, more than emphasizing. It's a way of amplifying a point within a passage. In other words, if this was Gabby sitting at her desk grading papers, this is circling it with a red pen and drawing a note beside it to draw the student's attention to it. Does that make sense? All right, you want to see one that every husband ought to love? See one that every every wife in the room ought to love? Oh, come on, y'all. We're talking love language right now. Abby, how's that little song go? When we tell Abby to get out of our room at night, she goes, I'm talking about Proverbs 31, y'all. Let's get there. Proverbs 31, 10. Yeah, this is so prolific in the word that it's unreal. I simply want to draw your attention to this because everyone's gone through marriage counseling should recognize it. This passage begins and ends with parallel statements about the value of a good wife. That's how it begins. That's how it ends. Every action of the wife is paralleled in perfect sequence later in the dialogue. The one attribute that is meant to stand alone, the one unparalleled truth, the amplified or emphasized statement It's concerning public respect for the husband. Now, not only does this have profound implications in your life, this is true in marriage, but it's also true in our marriage to the Lamb. So this is speaking to us on more than one level. Public respect for Jesus as husband and groom is the unparalleled virtue of the bride of Christ. Now... We can look at these in an acrostic. We can look at these in so many ways. But the chiastic structure 
reveals the one thing that there's nothing else like, the unparalleled truth. Man, isn't that a beautiful truth that you're finding, an unparalleled truth that's here about portions of our lives as a church that have been here from the beginning, walking through Proverbs 31. Let me show you something else that we've been covering and even covered last Monday night in Foundations. Let's look at the next slide. We have Second Chronicles in chapter 7. Where if my people called by my name will humble themselves. Not hide themselves. Not hide themselves, but actually humble themselves. Not just with your words, but in the depths of your heart where you humble yourself, church. Starting off with that, then you can pray. In the order here that you seek his face. You seek what he wants. You seek his heart about the matter. Then you turn from wicked ways. Then you will hear from heaven. Do you see how right there at turning from wicked ways, this thing begins to elevate. It actually does exactly what it looks like on the graph. Then they will hear from heaven. Then their sins will be forgiven. Then there will be healing in their land. There will be healing in their life. There will be healing in their bodies. There will be healing in their homes. See, we love that part about this. But the truth is, is there is a process that if you just walk through it linearly, man, Gives you such insight. But then even if you begin to look across, what does it take to find healing? A humility that must be seen in your life. What does it take to have your sins forgiven? You actually got to pray about it. Yeah, y'all act like you all know that. Uh, see, pastor's been around and, and going around the world and doing incredible things. I've been here with you. That's the incredible... Don't let that hurt your feelings. I'm jealous that he's been here with you. I miss you very much. He's going to slap you right now. I'm going to slap you later. (laughs) How many of you in this room, let's be honest with ourselves here. When when one of the elders, one of the pastors say, have you actually prayed about that? How many times is that like some vast revelation like, oh, you know, out of all my thought processes, I never humbled myself and actually just prayed. And I'm just kind of starting off because I want to jump to the right side of the screen. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Just check and see if you're here. How are you going to hear from heaven? The symbol just crashed right there. That was proving to you that that was appropriate. How are you going to hear from heaven unless you seek his face? And that leads us to an incredible unparalleled truth. It's to turn from your wicked ways. See, prayer is paralleled to the forgiving of sins. Seeking his face is paralleled to, to hearing from heaven. But the amplified truth, the emphasized truth, the unparalleled truth of this in this chiastic structure is that turning from your wicked ways is unparalleled in its effectiveness in your life. It is the key. It's the focal point because it's the unparalleled truth that you're supposed to get from this passage. This is an incredible time we have here. You know what's ironic about this is when you hear this quoted and you used to hear it quoted before everybody was hiding. But now that everybody is hiding, nobody talks about gathering together to pray and turn from their wicked ways to heal our land. That scripture suddenly has disappeared from Christian vocabulary, although it was a pretty popular scripture for a long time, right? Because the majority of the subject matter is about humbling and healing and praying and forgiving and seeking and hearing, you can actually overlook the central point of the entire thing since it's only mentioned once. That unparalleled unparalleled truth that is being emphasized is that you must turn from your wicked ways for any of the rest of it to work. 
And somehow or another, because we miss the intention of the Holy Spirit in the structure, we can miss the point that he's actually emphasizing. Does that make sense? We tend to hear what somebody says a lot. You might need to learn to listen to what they only said once. Because it was important enough to stand out. Does that make sense to you? Let's talk about the Torah as a whole. Is that okay? Can can I do that with you for a minute? Pat, is it alright if I do that for a minute? Amen. Because even if it's not alright, I'm back in town and it's what I'm doing. Let's talk Torah codes for a minute. I need to explain to you what ELS is quickly. ELS stands for equidistant letter spacing. This is not some weird mystical thing. This is something that mathematicians have discovered as aided by ancient Jewish rabbis. It basically works like this. If we're going to begin in Genesis, they began counting the number of letters that it took to come to the Hebrew equivalent of T. Then when they got that number, they counted again the same sequence of letters to see whether or not they could get the next letter of Torah. They began to find something. Genesis encodes the word Torah at an interval of every 49 letters from the beginning, somebody say beginning, from the beginning, to ending in the text of the book. Starting at the beginning, moving to the ending, you find at seven squared or 49 letter sequences the word Torah spelled in the text. That in itself is beautiful. But Exodus also encodes the word Torah at an interval of every 49 letters from the beginning, say beginning, beginning to the ending of the book. Well, that gets to be very interesting because when you get to Leviticus, it is not there. But in Numbers, we do find it. It's just different. Numbers encodes the word Torah backwards at an interval of every 49 letters from the ending, say ending, ending of the book to its beginning. And so does Deuteronomy. Every 49 letters backwards from the ending to the beginning. Now, this would perhaps appear as an oddity and anomaly until you consider the book of Leviticus. Remember they didn't find it in Leviticus? The same mathematical sequence was not there. The, 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 when you think through this, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, which means that there's two before it and there's two after it in the Torah. That in itself ought to be interesting. As they examine Leviticus further, what they found is it's not an interval of seven squared. It's a pure seven letter sequence and it doesn't spell Torah. It spells Yehovah or Yahweh. I did that Yehovah for you, Carlos. (laughs) The divine name of God is encoded. So what does that mean? Think through it in this slide. That means that Genesis and Exodus spell Torah and point towards Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy spell Torah in the opposite direction. And in the very middle of it, the aim is Yahweh. Examine that one more time. Look at it on this slide. In other words, Genesis spells Torah, that's the A. Exodus spells Torah, that's the B. And Leviticus spells Yahweh, it's what has no parallel. Okay? No parallel. This is done intentionally by God to emphasize something. All the Torah 
from left to right or right to left is aimed at the unparalleled, emphasized, dramatic truth that Yahweh has no equal. Does that make sense to you? Church, although the word chiastic is derived from the Greek word that means crossing over. Now, when you look at this slide, you got to understand something. This is so beyond some of us are having a hard time even capturing this in our thoughts right now. To, this is not some wartime code that you write in a paragraph and you have every fourth letter that means something. This is through the written, inspired, holy word of God. That you can even count letter spacings and find something so glorious, something so unparalleled, that it will shake your entire life. See, this carries through all the way through the Word of God. Chiastic means, it's the idea, the Greek word that means to cross over. See, this crossing over is shown, though, all the way through the Newer Testament as well. It permeates the Bible. It permeates everything that goes on. See, even if we were, if the people in the Newer Testament were writing in Greek, they understood and they thought in Hebrew. Let's consider the third chapter of Hebrew, speaking of Hebrew. Third chapter of Hebrew on the next slide. See, the writer of Hebrews is using a chiastic structure. You can go through this, these passages of scripture and see something beautiful. We're starting out, the writer of Hebrew uses the chiastic structure to illustrate that a congregation on earth will end up being realized as God's own house in the heavenly realm. He further illustrates and begins to speak about Jesus as being faithful, and Moses about being faithful, and that these faithful men were then placed in parallel to the concept that they are faithful in God's house, to serve in God's house in Moses' case, to lead God's house in Jesus' case. But you see the parallels there. This leaves something that is unparalleled. Everybody say unparalleled. Unparalleled. The unparalleled truth of Hebrews 3 is that Jesus is worthy of greater honor. The emphasized, amplified, unparalleled truth that the chiastic structure reveals here is that Jesus is worthy of the greatest honor possible. He is without equal in all of God's house. He is without parallel. His majesty is emphasized here in a way that is incredibly beautiful. Now, how many of you knew that about Hebrews 3 before we started today? See, this chiastic structure is supposed to emphasize to you something that you may have had a thought before, but if you had it in parallel with anything else, this structure is helping you go, no, 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 no. This point you must master. This point you must take and make a part of your life. You can't just go by it and acknowledge it intellectually. You can't wait till you just feel good about it. You have to understand that it is an unparalleled truth, and it's our responsibility to grasp these things and to apply them in our lives. Now, while you're still staring at that, I, I can get, if you are uh, like, this is your first introduction to it, you're like, cool, uh, well, what do I do with that? Aside from the fact that you want to go back and look at these chapters, we are driving towards something. But the tool that we're asking you to pick up is notice that these devices are intentional, that they're numerous, that they're used effectively by the Holy Spirit of God to highlight the importance of a particular point without de-emphasizing any other point. See, God understands you. And He knows that if we highlight a point in an extravagant way, you'll forget all of the others. This is a way for you to understand God's congregation on earth has an identity. 
It will have a greater identity in the heavens, but both are equally important. That Jesus and, say and, and Moses were faithful on earth, but they are also considered faithful in God's kingdom in his house. Both are important. Neither one is being uh, de-emphasized, but Jesus worthy of greater honor is being highlighted. This shows up in the first chapter of John too, and I don't have time to go through it, but it's it's extolling the virtues of Moses and Jesus. We tend to contrast points, which means that we eliminate one to grab another one. And what this is doing is showing you the importance of all, but the greatest of all of them is. Does that make sense? Now, the next slide is going to show you one person's understanding of the book of Revelation. I'm not saying this is right. I'm just telling you that these structures are everywhere. In this schematic for interpretation, the book begins and ends with Jesus and his church. The chiastic revelation in it is the 12th chapter. In the 12th chapter, of course, this is where Satan is cast from heaven. I want you to notice that the chiastic structure that this man sees in Revelation is identical to the unparalleled truth of Genesis 3 that the serpent is condemned. Does that make sense? The chiastic structure will help you in lots of ways. Show us one in Matthew. We've got one in Matthew that we'd like to show you as well. We realize the text is a little small, but by the way, you do know that all of our slides are always online as a PDF version for your later perusal. See, what you find out from this chiastic structure, this is from Matthew chapter 13. And what you learn in Matthew 13, the unparalleled truth that you see right in the center of your screen, is that people who can't see the truth choose. Somebody say choose. Choose Choose to close their eyes to what God has made obvious through all of creation, through all of time, through all of His people. See, if you have your eyes that are closed to it, you are going to not be able to see, but it's because they chose to have that. That is a decision. See, your sympathies can't be towards people who have closed their eyes. You have to have compassion, but you have to have a righteous standard within you. And this passage speaks to us on so many levels. If you just read it, boy, that would, that would fill and water your soul. If you meditated upon any single portion of it. But see, what we're trying to do, what I've learned from Eric a long, long time ago, and it blessed my life from the first day that I met this man was to understand that the Word of God is a contiguous, continuous, singular revelation. And when you try to parse it out too much, you may lose the emphasis that God wanted you to get from the entirety of what He had you read. That was much better than you responded to. In our, very, in our Western minds, we want to parse it out. We want to dissect it. We want to cut out little bits of it and show our great learning. It's not unusual for us to be here and, hey, what did you hear from the sermon? And I love the fact that you had 17 other thoughts that were added on to you. What I want to hear is your pastors, did you get the point of what we said? Did you learn what God was speaking to you? Did you get the point of the message? Yes, you're a very pretty girl. Yes, you're a very smart student. Are we getting the entirety of what God has? Are we learning the singularity of what He's trying to show us without losing the connectivity of it? Come on now. See, this is what the chiastic structure today is going to help us do. But look, we're about to show you two chiastic structures here that we want to spend the rest of our time. So far, the last 35 minutes 
have been for us to greet you and set up a singular thought. See, it's not just the movies that you go to that can have a, a theme that they're trying to establish something before they let you know something. See, we're working through this so that it will be memorable in our hearts. Amen. We're going to spend the rest of our time discussing something that has become dear to us for many years. But before we do that, I want to show you one more slide. Yeah, this summarizes what we have done, lest you think that uh, the beauty of what we've just shared uh, is somehow unimportant to you. It is connected in every way. The unparalleled truth about what we studied this far is that the serpent, in fact, will be condemned. Yeah. There's no questioning. There's no solution. That idolatry is an unparalleled evil. Somebody say unparalleled. unparalleled. That faithfulness under trial brings about an unparalleled victory from God. Somebody say unparalleled. unparalleled. That God's desire to save mankind is unparalleled. Say unparalleled. unparalleled. That public respect displayed in our actions, <clears throat> Proverbs 31, for Jesus as husband and groom is the unparalleled virtue of the bride of Christ. Somebody say unparalleled. unparalleled. To turn from wicked ways is an unparalleled in its effectiveness in your life. Somebody say unparalleled. unparalleled. That Yahweh is truth is the unparalleled focus of the Bible. Somebody say unparalleled. That Jesus is worthy of the greatest honor and is unparalleled in all of God's house. Somebody say unparalleled. Now what Pastor just did in summarizing that is he simply went over the acts portion of each chiastic structure that we covered. And we covered two in the law, two in the prophets, and two in the writings. All of that was to get us to the next two chiastic structures. One of which you've been studying for weeks, and the other of which is just so good I could not include it. Let's turn to Philippians 2. We're going to read 5 through 11, and then we're going to look at it as a chiastic structure and show you why. Tell me that you're there. All right, if you don't speak to me, I'm fully capable of getting to you. Tell me that you're there. Amen. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in nature, in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even Death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now look at this arranged as it is intended to be seen in a chiastic structure. When you... See that these have three equal parts on either side. Your eyes ought to already be drawing to what has no parallel. But let's just walk through it. Jesus stepped down from visible equality with God. And that is in parallel, confessed by every tongue to be Lord to the glory of God. Do you see that? What he gave up, he gets back and more so. That's a truth that this structure is revealing. More than that, Jesus became a servant 
Do you see that next? Made nothing as a servant. And what is in parallel with that is that every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow a knee in total subservience to Him. Do you see that there's a relationship between making yourself nothing and God making you everything? Then, Jesus humbled Himself in obedience unto death. And that is in parallel with the fact that He is given a name that is to be exalted above every other name. When you look at these in parallel, not grasping equality with God gave Him the confession that He is Lord. Being made nothing as a servant causes every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to bow in subservience to Him. Humbling Himself to an obedient death gives Him a name that is exalted above every name. The amplified, the intensified, the emphasized unparalleled truth is that the death on the cross was the triumphant action without equal in all of human history. Now, I did that in parallel. But understand, it's written linearly. Stepping down from equality, making yourself nothing, to obedience, even death on a cross causes exaltation, every need to bow, and every tongue to confess. Do you see the beauty of the statement? In every direction that you look at it, it emphasizes something, but the biggest emphasis is the statement, even death on a cross. Because that's not just a normal death. See, church, as we look at this even further, the more you humble yourself, the more God will exalt you. The more, if you don't fight for recognition, God will recognize you. Those who serve will be the kings of the age to come. Obedience unto death is required to be named in the age to come. Church, the highest goal and triumphant action for the believer is not to just die for the Lord, but to rather to die to sin so that you can live in the resurrected power for the Lord. Somebody say amen to that. See, and this is what this is showing in this passage. The structure helps you to emphasize not only the singular points, but the connectivity and the main point, the unparalleled truth that you're supposed to take away from it. Now, let's begin to connect some dots here. Let's do it. <laughs> we, we have been studying for weeks now. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been working through it. And you're now responsible for the things that you have been taught. But let's read the passage again. Let's all turn to 2 Corinthians 7 so we can begin to read it and look at it now that we have a deeper understanding of the chiastic structure. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Say no regrets when you get there. Man, get it. It says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Church, if you're like me, these words now ring differently in your own soul. They ring differently in your heart. You're understanding them. Uh, we're beginning to understand them as a church differently. That the things that were acceptable to you three weeks ago just don't seem as acceptable now because you have the standard. You understand what godly sorrow must be producing in you. Look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What alarm. What longing. 
What concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, now we have spent 43 minutes getting you to a passage that you've been studying for the last four meetings. Why do you think we introduced the truths of chiastic structures? That's because there's at least three extraordinary lessons that we want you to grasp from this passage alone. I'm going to outline them for you, and then we're going to go through them one, one at a time. Is that fair enough? First, that there is a parallel relationship between every action mentioned in this verse that will enrich both your walk and your overall understanding in the kingdom. Second, this whole process can be summarized in three statements that are the definition of a victorious life of faith. Third, the unparalleled truth revealed in this structure is the key to your entire walk with God in any circumstance, at any time, and in every station in life. Would you like to get into the first amazing revelation? Yeah, you haven't convinced me. I, if, if that's the best you can do, I'll, I'll go preach in Virginia. Do you want to get in this? Because when we're telling you that there's three amazing truths that will affect every area of your walk, and I said, you want to get into this? And you're like, yeah. Like, what are y'all, San Francisco church all of a sudden? What happened to you? Is there a man in the house of LCM that wants truth? Is there a woman in the house of God that wants truth? Amen. Well, now that we have that established, let's go through it. Let's take a look at the slide that you've been familiar with thus far that goes through each of the seven facets. This is something that you've been familiar with that we've been putting up before you. But I want to show it to you in a different way. This is in English, and the truth is, is if it would have been revelatory to us in English, we would have all got this a long time ago. But let's see what it is in the original language here in the Greek. Let's put up the next slide. See, what we talked about is as we're walking through this, this earnestness that's supposed to produce in us a speedy and an urgent effort must be seen in our lives. That is the first step. Somebody say first step. See, it's where we've got to begin in this process. Then we continue and humble ourselves to find actions, actual apologia, your defense that comes from the divine realm to help you in your actions to clear away the stain of sin. Then you get to a great burden for sin. You've taken on the right parts of the word. You've taken on the spirit and it produces something in you. And then we get to the phobos, to the fear of God. Then we walk through and we begin to lift. We begin to see other productions that are happening here where you begin to have longing or a strong affection for God. Come on now. If you've been walking rightly, if you actually have had the fear of the Lord instead of all the other fears that you've substituted for that, what begins to happen? The Lord didn't burn you. He could have. He could have taken you out and maybe He should have. But He loves you and He's trying to move in you. That produces such a longing for God. You no longer have strong affection for yourself, for your own pride, for your own thoughts. You have such a deep, longing and strong affection for God that it shows something important. See, you then have zealous, fervent, zealous actions for God's work. Amen. And then you begin to see an execution. You have a readiness. You're, you want to see God have justice in every area, not only in your life, but in the world around you. See, church, when a Christian 
experiences these things in this way, this is absolutely important. This is absolutely crucial. Now let's start looking at it a little bit here in the chiastic structure, the way that we have here on the screen. Let's talk through it for just a second. When your speed and effort to deal with sin personally has turned into the willingness to execute justice on evil everywhere that you find it. See, you started off having a sin problem. You started off having a weakness inside of you that had to be fixed, but you began to develop earnestness. The eventual fruit of that earnestness is going to be that you don't want to just have that when you're sinning. You want to have that in every area of your life. You want to have it in your marriage. You want to have it with your kids. You want to have it and begin to impact the world around you. Man, this is something that readiness to see justice done. Why? Because you've had justice rightly executed in your life. You've started off with earnestness and it produces a justice everywhere else. When your actions to clear the stain of sin away from you in your own life have turned and have turned into a fervent zeal. It's now no longer just to clear yourself from the stain of sin. It is to establish God's very work on the earth. That zeal becomes, uh, becomes consuming in you. You know that it's the zeal of the Lord that will do it, but your zeal rightly reflects that. You become white hot for every single area of your life to look like it. How? Why? Because you understand what it's like to work through and clear the stain of your own sin. That's where it begins. And the fruit of this is something that it's hard to even explain, explain to you. It's hard to express it to you. See, your great burden for your own sin has turned into a strong affection. I hate the sin in me. My goodness, this makes me want to love the Lord more. It makes me understand His great love, and now I've developed something special. Now it's not just because I say I love the Lord. It's seen because I hate my own sin, and that allows me to fall so deeply, madly, head over heels in love with God, that the, His affection and demonstrating that everywhere is the only thing that matters in your life. Church, this is an amazing revelation when you start seeing the comparison in parallel here that we've seen. But we've got more. Somebody say there's more. I want to make sure that we don't go too fast through this. And I know that you have spent four meetings on what it means to show speedy effort, what it means to show action to clear the stain, what it means to have a great burden for sin. And what it means to have a fear of God. I know that you have and we wanted to take the time to do that. What you need to get before we move past parallel. I, I want to go back to linear for just a second. If you roll back just one. Understand that you never arrive at execution of justice on evil. If you don't first move from speedy effort to address what's wrong to actions that clear it away. You have to go through it linearly to reach the parallel truths. And what happens to so many is you don't. You shipwreck your process so you never arrive at the kind of life that you can have. Can everybody say you want to be on the right side of the structure? Yes. See, you ought to want to be on the right. The right side of the structure is a strong affection for God, a fervent zeal for His work. An execution of justice on all evil. Do you want that to define your life, Micaiah? Yes. You can't get to it if you don't work through the steps linearly. Amen. Okay? 
In an age of fast food Christianity, it's important that you get hold of this. Now, the parallel truths are the incentive to get hold of this. How do I go back to the, the next one? How do I have the courage? How do I find the fortitude to show speed in this? Because I know my life is going to end up executing justice on all evil behavior. How do I hold up my head and walk into the room and show actions that will clear away the stain? Because I know my life is going to end up fervent and zealous for God's work. This is where I am today. It's not where I'll be tomorrow. How do I carry this great burden for my sin? Because I've got a strong affection for God coming upon me. Now when you think through that, That takes us to some other aspects of this. There's a second amazing revelation that you get from this passage as a whole. And it can be summarized in three statements that the pastors have been working at for you because Paul introduced it this way. The statements end up being the very definition of a victorious life. Can I show them to you? Let's go to the next one. The left side of the chiastic structure, speed, effort, urgency, Actions clearing away a stain and a great burden for sin. That's what actually brings you to repentance. Any element that's missing and you're not at a place of repentance at all. The right side of the structure is what it means to have no regrets. When you have a strong affection for God, when you have a zealous, fervent zeal for God's work, when you want to execute justice Wherever you are. That is an amazing truth. Speedy, urgent actions clear away the stain of sin because of your great burden for sin brought you into biblical repentance. Biblical repentance leads you somewhere. It leads you to salvation. Repentance leads you to salvation. The left side, if you don't have an urgency to run to get right, If you don't want to take action to clear away a stain, if you don't have a great burden for sin, you have not been led to salvation. You want to know why the church has such a hard time repenting at large? Because we're pretending that goats are sheep. That's why. They're not actually in the faith at all. And it shows. You are in the faith. But like all sheep, you're prone to want to skip steps. You're prone to want to walk right into the presence of God and go, Look, Lord, I know that you forgive me. And because you forgive me, I I just, look, we're good. And by the way, could you help me pay my rent? And uh, I, I would surely love a wife. Friends, that's a salesman giving an assumptive close. That's not what salvation looks like. Neither is it to go, well, you know, all you really got to do is know these four things. If you can quote Romans 10, 9 and 10. Listen, this buffoonery is falling on its face all around us. The church can't even go outside because they might catch a cold. When you have gone through this process, you end up at something that has led you to salvation. And so you develop a strong affection for God. You develop fervent zeal for his work you begin to look for not just evil in your own life but anywhere that you find it okay 
Church, are you able to see now the importance of what God has given us to study as a church? Of course you want to live a life that has no regrets, that leaves no regret. Of course, every human being would want to be able to say that. You can think back about regrets, but do you see how aiming for that misses the entirety of what actually causes that to be? That we have to start with a godly sorrow that walks us through these. These revelations as you walk through it linearly, as you understand the parallel parts of this are beautiful, as you understand how they're grouped, gives you something that is absolutely life-altering. You might even say it's life-changing. But see, there's yet another revelation that we have. There's yet another level that we can go. Are you ready for this third amazing revelation? This is the one that you have to come to grips with. It has no parallel. Somebody say unparalleled. It's the only path to repentance and salvation and a life of no regrets. It's the key to your entire walk with the Lord in any circumstance, at any time, in any and every situation. Now, I think there'd be a little more zeal for that kind of revelation in this room. I mean, uh, it is the key. It is the unparalleled truth. It is the answer that you're looking for. And it's been in the passage and in front of your face the whole time, but it is so absent from today's Christianity that it's why everybody is as diseased as they are. A pastor is going to show it to you, and he can display it for you, but he can't understand it for you. Look, we're, we're 57 minutes in, and some of you will think, oh man, what you're saying is hard. No, it's not hard. It just requires you to actually look at your own life, and you find that hard. You would rather do anything other than that. Now, I've got your attention for a few minutes and I'll do whatever it takes to keep your attention for a few minutes. If we're going to show you a key, friends, you better grab hold of it. Let's take a look at this next slide. The unparalleled truth, the emphasized, the the uh, unalterable part of this is that the fear of the Lord... (laughs) In the, in the Greek, or in the English rather, it was alarm. That lacks a lot for us to understand. The whole key, the key to everything here is to have a fear of God. This is the central part of your life. Pastor, I know, I thought you said we got to start. Yes, this is the key. This is the unparalleled truth that you have to have. It will affect everything that you do. I promise you that what you need more of is the fear of the Lord. You think you need more money. I promise you, you don't. Because this is actually what leads to your salvation. Pastor, I I just don't know why I feel this way. I just can't help but look at that. No, I know what your problem is. You do not fear God. Pastor, I just don't know why I can't control my emotions. I don't know why I love that. You don't fear God. Well, how do I get to a place where I do? Show speed and urgent effort. You begin to take action to clear this away. Throw away your phone. Cancel your TV show. Do whatever it takes to get rid of this. Develop a great burden for the sin so that you can execute it rather than excuse it. The fear of the Lord is why people fail. They don't have it. When you do have it, It controls everything that you do. I don't know why I just can't get out of bed. Because you don't fear God and you're unaccountable to anyone. I don't know why I can't hold a job. You don't fear God. That's why. 
The fear of the Lord is everything and it's not preached about nearly enough. It's the unparalleled, emphasized. If it could have been italicized and underlined and highlighted, it is the point of 2 Corinthians 7. Husbands, this is why you don't lead your wives well. Oh, she's not listening. No, you don't fear the Lord enough to actually make something happen in your home. Wives, you don't follow your husbands rightly. It's not because they don't have the right decision-making skills. It's because you don't fear the Lord. And if you feared the Lord, then you would understand the submission and the respect that's needed, and you would help make your husband into something even better. See, every, every need that we have here, the key to our entire Christian walk is seen here. The key to us actually finding repentance, being led to salvation, and actually leaving, living a life of no regret is found here. The unparalleled truth is the fear of the Lord. We're going to go through a couple passages that will help this. But if you, if you didn't understand anything we said about the chiastic, if you're just that dense, we'll meet with you afterwards. But I suspect you're not that dense. If you're looking at this and you're like, I don't know what they're talking about at all, I'm going to suggest to you that if you cared, you would know. But it, let's, let's just move beyond that. No, I'm going to do it one more time. If we were talking about something you were interested in, then you would have followed us. Okay? Perhaps you should see what all springs from the fear of God. See, the things that spring from it have to do with great burdens for sin and strong affection for God. They have to do with actions that clear away stain and fervent work and zeal for God. They have to do with speed and urgent effort to execute justice against all evil. All that springs from one place and all those things help cultivate only one thing. A fear for God. But whether you look at this as a circle, a V, a root or a seed that, that plants more. However, whether you look at it as something that descends down and then ascends, it doesn't matter. The center of all of it is a fear of God. Why are churches not meeting? Because they don't fear God. Why do Christians not care? Because they don't fear God. Why is our government doing what it's doing? Because they don't fear God. Why do we have various factions rioting and protesting and hating? They don't fear God. Why do you do what you do? You don't fear God nearly enough. When you have this, it doesn't matter what situation you're put in. It doesn't matter whether or not you're at a certain stage of life. Nothing else matters because you know that the Lord is all around you. He is watching. He is all powerful. He is with you. all. So your behavior is not different in different places. Nope. Circumstances don't affect what you do at all because your life is deeply rooted and profoundly pointed at a fear of God. Can I tell you that this one truth would get rid of all counseling in all churches? Wow. A hundred. I don't know why my wife won't listen to me. Because neither one of you fear God very much. True. You want me to referee between you because you just, you, you don't fear reverence and love God like you should. Well, I really think it's an issue of communication. No, it's not. It's an issue of fear of God. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know why my kids don't obey me. You don't fear God and they don't fear you. The fear of God is the key to everything. In fact, I think Isaiah says exactly that. Isaiah 33, verse 6. Let's all turn there together. 
Say fear of God when you get there. Isaiah 33, 6. I got told I don't know how many times in the last two days how good the preaching has been while I've been gone, and I want you to know I believe every bit of that. I want you to know that I've been told by people that I love and I respect, man, I just didn't know. Like, I just, I didn't know that I needed to show speed and repentance. All right. Like, it was such a revelation to me, Pastor, that I needed to have a a greater burden for sin. Watch, you ready? I'm going to suggest to you that what you're actually trying to express rather cowardly is that you didn't have a great fear for God. That that's the serious issue. And I'm going to, and right now some of you are nodding your head and I appreciate it because I am talking directly to you. People that I love yesterday, day before, came up and they're complimenting these people. Oh, they did such a good job. Like, because the thing is, is before they said it, I, I just didn't understand. Liar. You just didn't fear God enough. And they're actually highlighting that. And you're calling it something else. I didn't know I needed to be speedy to repent. Like, I don't want to tell you. I would have to repent if I told you the thought that brought to mind when I heard that. I just didn't know that I needed to take action to clear away my sin. Really? Like, how long have you owned a Bible? I, I, just, I just didn't know how... Se- now we're getting closer. Why don't you just say the truth? I haven't feared God enough to do this right See, that would be a key to unlocking a treasure. Isaiah 33, 6 says this. He, meaning God, will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation, of wisdom, of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to the entirety of the treasure. It is the unparalleled truth. It is the focal point. It is what's being emphasized. And we must emphasize it because God himself has emphasized it. Man, the beautiful part of this is not only the key. We've we've been establishing that. It just says it in the plain text. It says it if you look and you understand a chiastic structure. It says it because you should understand that God is emphasizing it to us as a church. But the footnote on this is incredible. It's not only the key to the treasure. The footnote in your, in your Bibles says that the fear of the Lord is a treasure for Him. See, the Lord can work through and help produce a fear for Him and then you must respond because it is the key to the treasure. It is the unparalleled truth and we have to walk in this in a deeper way. And the Lord is going to help us. He is the sure foundation. He is going to lead you through this. But you have to have a deep burning desire. To increase your fear of the Lord in every area. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be extraordinarily sensitive to what He wants. What He desires. What He thinks. It means to have a reverential concern for all things the Lord. It means to be conscious of Him in any and every situation. See, we can quote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and you can be stupid as a box of rocks while you say it because you're not conscious of His presence in your daily 
hourly, minutely activity. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to be aware of Him at all times. So that at all times, you're being led towards things that save rather than kill. I want to show you that in Psalm 34, verse 11. And by the way, we're skipping some things because I want to come to a place where we actually deal with the root of this matter. But I will tell you, that Phobos doesn't appear for the first time in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. It's how the chapter opens, that you're to perfect your, your holiness out of a fear or reverence of God. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 1, but that's not where we're at. Where we're at right now is Psalm 34, verse 11. Let me read it for you. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Why is that important? Because it is what will lead you towards repentance. It is what will bring you to salvation. It is the key to having a life that has no regrets. It's the key to everything. Why? Why is he emphasizing this? Because he wants good things for you. And this is the only way to get it. Look at verse 12. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. Anybody in the house love life and want to see many good days? Then through the fear of the Lord, you must keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Are you catching that? The fear of the Lord causes you to turn to do, to seek, and to pursue the things of God. Without the fear of the Lord, you do what you like, you refuse what you dislike, and you ask somebody else to referee your relationship with the Lord. And it shows up in the cycles of disobedience in your life. And measuring success between cycles. The fear of the Lord will flatten out your Ah, roller coaster ride, and it will make it consistent because how you're walking won't depend on who is looking. How you are walking will not depend on your circumstances. How you are walking won't depend on whether you have a job or a well-liked or not like. It will depend completely on your consciousness of what God thinks about everything that you do. We have a slide for you. On the fear of the Lord. Church, as we're working towards a point where you're going to, going to need to respond openly and publicly here. You have to understand that as you're walking through, we just read Psalm 34. That the fear of the Lord will produce in you the ability to turn from evil and do good. To seek peace and pursue it. That you can actually be taught the fear of the Lord. Listen, my children. I'm going to tell you. You can learn how to do it. But, but I don't know. You can learn how to do it. And this is what we're talking to you about today. The unparalleled truth of the importance of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19 says that the fear of the Lord leads to life. Doesn't that sound very similar to what we've been talking about in 2 Corinthians 7? Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does that mean if you have no fear of the Lord? You haven't begun 
to understand the wisdom of God. Proverbs 2 says that the fear of the Lord, you've got to understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. If you're lacking knowledge of God, it's because you have not yet understood and participated in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 10, that the fear of the Lord adds length to your life. Why would the Lord want to give you extra life if what you have is not being used rightly? It will just give you more potential for sin. It will give you more potential for the cycles that have broken you down the entire time. See, He's going to add length to your life as you fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. My goodness. In Ecclesiastes 12, which is summarizing the whole duty of mankind. Here it is in a nutshell. You want to boil the Word of God down to two thoughts? It's to fear God and to obey His commandments. To fear God, number one, and that will help you to obey His commands. That's your whole responsibility on this planet, is to fear God and to do exactly what He says. Do you see how this is the unparalleled truth of the entirety of the Word of God? How many of you have heard, God is love? What are the rest of you asleep? How many of you have heard God is love? That's better. We've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it. But to quote an 80s song, you can't know what love is. When you say God is love, without the fear of the Lord, you have no idea what that means. Let's look back at our chiastic structure before we do our final scripture. Until you have a great burden... For sin. Until you have developed a fear of God. I'm talking item C and D. You cannot have a strong affection for God. Say, well, I I just believe my God is a loving God. Said perfectly like an unrepentant sinning pig. Because you would know God is a loving God if you had been in a place where a death sentence was in your heart. You knew that you deserved to die. You were so burdened by it that you had sped to action. You were trying to clear it away and realized you couldn't. And you had a great burden. And then, because you feared God, He delivered you from it. You wouldn't say, well, my God's a loving God. You wouldn't, you wouldn't just excuse things like that. You would say things like, our God's a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But He has had mercy on me, so I love Him. Then you might get to, I only love Him because He first loved me. But the blanket excuse, God's a loving God, is our generation's way to not have to deal with the fact that you must have a fear of God to cultivate any real walk with Him. And it's why most have no real walk with Him. When He spoke to me that night in my bedroom so many years ago, can I tell you, there was no equivocation. There was no excusing of sin. There was no thinking about anything else. The God of the universe got my attention And I was both terrified and enthralled. Even if I sit and think about it now, it takes me right back there. 
You have to develop a fear of God to do anything else. While you're staring at that, actually, I'm going to need to put it on the screen for everybody. Psalm 128 is where we close. It's our last scripture for the day. The whole concept here is that if you properly are led towards repentance, if you have godly sorrow, it brings you into repentance. That teaches you how to fear God, which is salvation. And it will leave a life of no regret. I want to show you that in a single passage. Uh, I'm reading from a different translation here called the Lexingham. But you will be able to follow and pick out the differences. Psalm 128 verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh. Who walks in His ways. Think about that. Blessed, happy, well situated. Positioned rightly before God. Is the one who fears Yahweh. That's where everything starts. Now verse 2. You will indeed eat of the labor of your hands. You will be happy. And it will be well with you. That sounds like a life of no regrets, doesn't it? Verse 3. Your wife. Come on men, say my wife will be a fruitful vine within your house. Your children. Somebody say your children. Your children will be like olive shoots at your table. Look, for thus shall be a man blessed who fears Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and that you may see... Your children's children. You want a life of no regret? You need to come to the unparalleled truth of Scripture. Everything begins with the fear of God. Say, no, I just want to love Him more. Fear Him more and you will love Him more. I just want to be more zealous for His work. Fear Him more. You will have more zeal for His work. I just want to go save Africa. You cannot do it without a fear of God that everything else is driven from. So, but he's my father. I don't want to fear him. If you had a good relationship with the father, you would understand what we're talking about. When you deeply love somebody, you fear disappointing them. You care about everything that they think and they do. The only person that we're supposed to have fear of The only one that we're allowed to give that to is our Father. Our Heavenly Father. Because He won't abuse it. He won't manipulate you with it. He won't enslave you with it. He will use it to free you. When I say fear, you need to think, am I totally conscious of God's feelings, God's actions, God's principles about everything that I do during every moment of the day? Or do I only think about it when I'm called on the carpet for doing something wrong? Do I only think about it when somebody else points out my sin? The way to victory in Christ is to develop a fear of God. That will grow all of the longing, strong affection, all of the zealous, the fervent zeal for God's work, all of the outward global activity you ever wanted. Nobody ever had to encourage me to go to church. Not one time. I've never needed you to encourage me to read my Bible. I have never needed you to come to me and say, you know what, you really just need to pray. 
Because on the night I encountered him, he deposited in me a fear of God that is well beyond a fear of what you think. That will save every one of you. We're going to ask the Lord to cultivate a deep, reverential fear, concern, whatever you want to call it, that everything else will spring from. And then your life won't be about managing sin anymore. You'll put it right underfoot. Your life won't be about trying to develop the discipline to show love for the Lord. That's an absurd concept. He'll be at the center of everything that you do and everything will grow out of that. Is there somebody in this room that wants that? I'm not interested in peer pressure in this regard because it'll just make you guilty. If you say, yes, I want to develop a fear of the Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm asking for that. And you rush to this altar and then you walk right out there like nothing happened right here. You'll learn to fear God in an entirely different way. I want you to learn to fear Him like my sons fear me. Fear me because we love each other the way we do. We don't want to disappoint each other. We want to get it right. I want that kind of relationship between you and the Lord. But if you mock what we're doing here by treating it lightly, you will learn a different kind of fear. One that maybe could be translated terror. Because the earth and sky don't dare mock God. They flee from His presence. What an awesome opportunity that you have to actually meet with God and have His heart deposited in you. I'm going to begin to pray. And then you do what you must. Father, we're asking right here and right now that Your Spirit of holiness would move in us and on us. Lord, we know now what we need. We have not feared the greatness of Your name. We have not feared the awesomeness of Your nature. We have not feared Your disapproval. So we have not loved You properly. We have not walked in Your power rightly. Lord, we've managed what we're supposed to execute. Spirit of holiness, would you move across this room? Would you cultivate in us as we plow our hearts the seeds of a reverential fear for you? You are the lifter of our souls, but you also struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. Lord, let your reality set on us. place ourselves in your hands do with us as you will mighty one